You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. And we're going to be learning from Bishop Sheen today uh, the Catechism Series uh, lesson, and it'll be on the topic of heaven. And so I'm always wanting to learn more about heaven. And so Bishop Sheen will give us uh, some very good instruction today. Uh, but before that lesson, we're going to enjoy one of his um, television shows, uh, from his Life is Worth Living series. And uh, this show, the title of the program, was entitled Something Higher. So it kind of ties in with the topic of heaven. And so we're going to enjoy that, but let's, of course, pray before we do that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy this reflection entitled, Something Higher, from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Friends, the other day I was in an elevator in a department store. I was shopping on the fifth floor, and I wanted to go to the sixth. I went into the elevator, and several other passengers went in with me, and just as the elevator was about to start, the operator said, uh, going up, and some woman rushed out madly, and she said, uh, I don't want to go up, I want to go down. And then turning to me, I don't know why she picked on me, but turning to me, she said, I didn't think I could go wrong following you. I said, Madam, I only take people up, not down. <laughs> that actually happened, and that's the subject of tonight's telecast. Oh, we have a brand new green board. Yes, it's been given to us by the United States Plywood Company. Mr. Anderson brought it in. See, my name is on it, and a piece of chalk through some angelic power just stays right there. 
Now it's to indicate how we are taken up. To understand it, we must first of all describe what has been happening to man in the course of the centuries. Oh, this is nice. First of all, a man has been living for centuries, and many still are, those who give a tone to society still are, living under this philosophy of life. That man is living on the earth as a kind of novitiate. And above him is heaven, which must be one, and below hell, which is the place of voluntary failure. And during the earthly pilgrimage, a man could say aye or nay to either one of these eternal destinies. It gave great responsibility to human freedom and zest to live. Many there are still believe in that philosophy of life. I do. But then, within the last 200 years, these great eternities have been denied by many. And man is said to have no other existence than merely the horizontal plane of earth. Given enough pleasure, the opportunity to make, make enough money, this is all that he needs for happiness. But it happens that within the last 35, 40 years. This horizontal plane here has been shortening on man. World War I, World War II, depressions have closed man within himself so that today man is locked up inside of himself. He's almost his own jailer. And just as a river that is blocked collects considerable scum and sediment, and so too man today is imprisoned within himself. And to give some meaning to it, some of the psychologists have said, well, there are three levels here, too, inside of the human mind. One level is that of the superego, which is made up of taboos, ideals, commandments, and the like. Down below is the id, the deep, mysterious, cavernous instincts which satisfy the animal cravings of man. This is modern man, imprisoned in a mind without windows and without doors, and about all the enjoyment that he gets out of life is to psychoanalyze what goes on inside of him. This is modern man. Is there any possibility of modern man escape? Yes, there is. Modern man is like an egg. See, that wasn't a bad egg, was it? It was a big one, but I surprised myself when I draw well. 
Even a good blackboard, you know, does not make you draw well. I, I'm very much like a man who got a beautiful checkbook and has no money in the bank. The modern man is very much like this egg. Now, how can an egg be broken? It can be broken in one of two ways. From the outside, or from the inside. Broken from the outside by smashing it. Socially, that is the function of barbarism. It may very well be that the purpose of communism in the modern world is to break the hard shell of materialism that is encrusting modern civilization in order that the hidden life that is within us may spring forth and we may produce a richer and a better culture. That may be under God's providence the mission of communism, unless we open it from the inside. We open it from the inside then as a chick picks away and discovers another world. But in order to do that, the chick inside must have the instinct of realizing that there's a bigger and broader environment than the mere confines of a shell. And once it knows that greater environment and tries to establish relationship with it, then it uses its own efforts to escape from the shell. And that is the remedy that we're going to offer. Now, I'll indicate here that my angel is to clean the blackboard. See how simple that is? For the benefit of those in the television audience, they're all laughing at the angel's new wings. They're particularly bright this evening. <laughs> How does man establish contact with this uh, new and greater environment? Well, all he has to do is be consistent about his sciences, and particularly biology. It is disappointing, and it is sad, that people do not realize the hidden beauties of evolution and all of its implications. Here are the various hierarchies of the universe. Chemicals, plants, animals, man. Now what is the law of evolution? If anything lower, is ever to mount to a higher plane, two conditions are required. First of all, what is higher must come down to the lower. There must be a descent from above. And secondly, what is lower must surrender its lower existence. For example, is it possible for the rain and the phosphates and the carbon and the moisture and the sunlight to live in the plants? It is. But first of all, the plant must go down to the chemicals. There must be a descent from above. And if the plant could speak, it would say to the moisture and the sunlight, unless you die to the, your lower existence, you cannot live in my kingdom you are not blotted out. You are not destroyed. 
For if you were destroyed, you would never be living and nourishing me. But surrender this lower form of existence and find yourself now in a living thing. If the plants are ever to live in the animals, first of all, the animals must come down to the plants. And when they come down to the plants, the plant must surrender its lower existence. It must be pulled up from its roots, ground beneath the jaws of death. It is not destroyed. Otherwise, it would never nourish the animal. The animal could speak, it would say to the plants, unless you die to yourself, you cannot live in my kingdom. When finally the plant is taken up into the animal, it's no longer just simply a living thing. It is now part of a creature that is endowed with five senses. And it is conscious in the sense that it has a sentient life. Man goes down to the animals and to the plants and the chemicals. They cannot be taken up into himself unless he goes down. When he goes down to them, he practically says, unless you die to yourself, you cannot live in my kingdom. And the animal must be subjected to the knife and the fire. But when these lower things surrender their existence, they are taken up into a creature that is thinking and willing and loving. They become part of a richer and higher kingdom, become part of the world of poetry and art and science and culture and civilization. This is the law that runs through the universe. Now tell me, why should the law stop with man? Is there not something higher? that can come down to man on condition that man die to himself. The rose has no right to say there's no higher life than itself. Two little tadpoles were once playing in the water and one little tadpole said to the other, oh, you know, I think I'll stick my head above the water, see if there's anything else. And the first tadpole says, don't be silly. You mean to say there's something else in this world besides water? Well, there's something else besides man in this universe. But if man is ever to be elevated, God must come down to man. Point number one. But there's this difference. These things here have no personality. They have no freedom, no liberty, no rights. Only persons have rights. Therefore, the animals need never consult the plants, and the plants need never consult the chemicals. They just merely may use violence. But no one can lay hold of a man without exercising man's freedom, and not even God will do it. 
And he will not come into the order of humanity without first asking man if he freely will receive him. And that was the mission that came from an angel to a virgin kneeling in prayer. The question really was, will you give me a man? Freely. Will you give me a humanity? God can come down to man, but there's a condition required for man to go back to God. And the condition is, one man must freely will to do so, and secondly, man must also die to himself. Not die to his personality, not die to his human nature, but only die to that which is evil in him. Just as the chaff is separated from the wheat, so he must separate evil from himself. That means that he must brush off from his personality such things as pride and covetousness and lust and anger and envy and gluttony and sloth. And everything that would spoil this ascent from man back again to God. That's the complete and total law of all evolution. God coming to man and man freely responding. Not many men want to. One of the reasons they do not want to is because it costs so much. It's hard on us. Hard on our egotism. Sometimes men much prefer to say, oh, I just want not a personal religion, but a religion which I adore the cosmos. Well, apropos of that, I must tell you that some few years ago on radio, I was talking about a cosmical religion, and I said, man can never love the cosmos. Because man can never love anything, he cannot get his arms around. And the cosmos is too big and too bulky. After the broadcast, I really and truly received a telephone call from a woman who in wrath and exasperation chided me, saying, well, this was some years ago because I remember how she opened it. Do you mean to tell me, young man? She said, do you mean to tell me, young man, that I can't love anyone unless I can get my arms around them? I said, madam, that isn't my problem, that's yours. Now, man does say, yes, I'm willing to die to that which is sinful within me in order to be incorporated uh, to uh, divinity. Suppose he says that. Then something happens to his nature. And what happens to his nature does, certainly does not belong to it. If, for example, I had a bottle here on the desk. And that bottle suddenly turned into four roses. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong on this. 
If it did, that would be something that does not belong to the nature of a bottle to bloom. And if we had a rose, and the rose suddenly said, I think that I will go to uh, California for the winter, or to Florida, we play fair, I think we're going to both places. Uh, that would be an act which certainly does not belong to the nature of the powers of a, of a rose. And if a dog suddenly walked across our stage here and began quoting Shakespeare, that would be a very supernatural act for a dog. Now, if man, who by nature is only a creature, becomes a child of God and begins to share the divine nature, that's something that does not belong to him any more than blooming belongs to a stone or sentiency belongs to a rose or speech belongs to a dog. That would be something was so far beyond us that when we received it, we would wonder how we ever deserved it. When we're made, we're just creatures, that's all, nothing else. And you always make something that is unlike you. But you beget something that is like you. Mother begets a child. And when we have this life inside of us, then we're not just creatures made by God. Then we become something else. Then we are really begotten. That's the way we go up. That's the way we're lifted out of this natural order of ours. There are not many who wish to go that high up, with the result that they're very much like a three-story house. That's a house. <laughs> this is the basement, and this is another floor, and this is another. This looks like our house on 38th Street, this one. We climb, we climb four flights of stairs for dinner, and for lunch and for breakfast, three times a day. Really, we do. And during Lent, it's not worth it. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, some people just simply live. Some people live down in the cellar. And that corresponds to those who live just a sensate existence. There are some people that live just like animals. All they want is pleasure. They never attempt to develop their mind. And if you told them, there's another room above that's much better, they would say, well, how do I know? And the result is they would never try to go up. But there is another floor up there. This is the floor of art, science, and philosophy, reason, and the like. And this is much more commodious, much better living in this sense, existence below. And if you tell them there's another floor up above that, and it's wonderfully furnished, gives you great happiness, down here all there are in the television shows are just commercials. That's all. <laughs> up here everything is peaceful and beautiful and happy, and some say, well, how do I know if there's anything above? These people are just like the deaf. The deaf are, are dead to the great environment of harmony blind or dead to the environment of, of beauty. And so there are people who are actually deity blind. And they refuse to recognize that there's something over and above that gives us the peace of soul 
that surpasses all understanding. And if only we could convince the world about this other reality, and if we could induce people to contact this broader environment, every one of them, so that they would break the shell of egotism, to contact this diviner world, and use their own effort to crack the shell and to establish union with the great divine world, then they would understand the words of our divine life. How often would I have gathered thee to myself as the hen doth gather her chicks. Her chicks. That's what we are. Living under the covert of the divine wings above the senses above reason in the world of faith and joy and inner peace and happiness which we would not give up for anything in all the world. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336, or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic Family Videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me once again for these very informative and heartwarming uh, conversations that Bishop Sheen has been uh, sharing with us. He's now going to, of course, give us a catechism lesson on the topic of heaven. So please uh, sit back and relax and enjoy the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Peace be to you. I believe there is a popular song entitled, I'm in heaven when I'm near you. 
Now, that indeed may be a kind of heaven, but it is not the kind of heaven, however, to which we aspire. In order to understand heaven, though it is in eternity, we must nevertheless begin by talking about time. Heaven is outside of time, but we have to use time to get there. It seems almost like a paradox. Well, first of all, why must heaven be outside of time? Simply because none of us would really want on this earth a kind of an endless existence. If it were possible for us to live 400 years with some new kind of vitamin, do you think that we would all swallow them? There would certainly come one moment in our existence when we would want to die. Have you ever been in any one place in this earth that you are absolutely sure would be one in which you would want to spend every day of your life? It is not very likely. The mere extension of time to most of us would probably be a curse instead of a blessing. Then, too, have you ever noticed that your happiest moments have come when eternity almost seemed to get inside of your soul. All great inspirations, certainly, are rather timeless, and that gives us some suggestion of heaven. Mozart was once asked, uh, when he received his inspirations for his great music, he said he saw them all at once. There was a great heat, great warmth, great light. And then there came the succession of moments, or rather the succession of notes. So it is in writing a speech. When I prepare a talk or a telecast or begin writing a book, there comes a moment when the end is seen at the beginning. One cannot write fast enough. Eternity is in the mind, and time is at the end of the pen. Words do not come out fast enough. Lacordaire, the great French preacher, was once asked if he had completed his famous sermons to be given in the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And the answer, yes, I have finished them. All that I have to do now is to write them. Then there comes to everybody, whether he's good or bad, some dim intimations of immortality, such as Wordsworth wrote about, what will happen after death. There are, however, so many men who try to immunize themselves from those thoughts of eternity. They put on a kind of a God-proof raincoat so that the drops of his grace will not get through to them. They shut out eternity. I wonder if anybody has ever described this better than T.S. Eliot. 
entitled The Men Who Turn From God. It is a poem about those who busy themselves with everything in time, never give a moment to the stranger. The stranger who has been knocking at the gate of their soul almost every day. The stranger who made them uneasy in their sleep. For at night there are dire dreams of immortality. But to get to the poem of T.S. Eliot. O weariness of men who turn from God. To the grandeur of your mind and the glory of your action. To arts and inventions and daring enterprises. To schemes of human greatness thoroughly discredited. Binding the earth and water to your service exploiting the seas and developing the mountains, dividing the stars into common and preferred, engaged in devising the perfect refrigerator, engaged in working out a rational morality, engaged in printing as many books as possible, plotting of happiness and flinging empty bottles, turning from your vacancy to fevered enthusiasm, or nation, or race, or what you call humanity, though you forget the way to the temple, there is one who remembers the way to your door. Life you may evade, death you shall not. You shall not deny the stranger. The stranger is the one who brings eternity into your soul. Though we live in time and make much of it, think about time only. It is actually the one thing that makes happiness impossible. Simply because you live in time, you cannot combine your pleasures and your joys and your happinesses. You cannot make a club sandwich of pleasures. For the mere fact that you are in time, you cannot march with Napoleon and march with Caesar. You cannot sit down to tea with Horace and Dante and Alexander Pope. Because you are in time, you cannot enjoy winter sports and the seashore simultaneously. Time demands that you take all of your pleasures successively. And time not only gives them to you, time also takes them away. And thus, if you examine your own psychological intuitions and experiences, you will discover that your happiest moments are those when you were never conscious of time at all. 
when you were in school or perhaps in your office, you look at the clock. You were not enjoying the school. You were not enjoying your work. Maybe you are attending a concert or enjoying a conversation with friends. Possibly you may be reading. And you say, time passes like anything. The less conscious you are of the passing of time, the more you enjoy yourself. There is a hint of what heaven must be. It must be outside of time, where you can possess all joys at one and the same full moment. Well, that's the condition of happiness. But though it is outside of time, you have to use time in order to get to heaven. Now, we too often think of heaven as being way out there. We draw all kinds of pictures about heaven. Most of them are quite unreal. And because we think of heaven, and even hell, as something that happens to us at the end of time, we keep on postponing it. As a matter of fact, Heaven is not way out there. Heaven is in here. Hell is not way down there. Hell could be inside of a soul. There's no such thing as dying and then going to heaven or dying and going to hell. You're in heaven already. You're in hell already. I've met people who were in hell. I'm sure you have. I remember once attending a man in a hospital. When I asked him to make his peace with God, he said, I suppose you're going to tell me I'm going to hell. No, I said, I'm not. Well, he said, I want to go to hell. I said, I have never met in my life a man who wanted to go to hell, so I think I will just sit here and watch you go. I did not intend, of course, to let the time pass without doing something, but I was absolutely sure that if he had a few minutes to himself, he might change his point of view. And so I sat alone with him for 20 minutes, I could see him going through a kind of a soul struggle. And then I, he said to me, you really believe there's a hell? And I said, do you feel unhappy on the inside? Are you fearful? Is there dread? Anxiety? Are all the evil things of your life coming up before you as a specter, as a ghost? Well, it was not long until he made his peace with God. And so I've seen people with heaven in them. 
you ever want to see heaven in a child, look at that child the day of his first communion. If you want to see how much love is related to heaven, just look at a bride and groom at the altar on the day of the nuptial mass. Heaven is there. Heaven is there because love is there. I've seen heaven in a missionary nun. Yes, a missionary nun who was spending herself and being spent among the lepers. Sometimes you see a virtuous young person and you see heaven there. The beauty of such a person is not put on the outside. It is a kind of an imprisoned loveliness that comes from within. As if it were breaking down the bars of flesh in order to find some outward utterance. So heaven is here, just as hell can be in the soul of some. Now, as a matter of fact, heaven is very close to us because heaven is related to a good life in somewhat the same way that an acorn is related to an oak. An acorn is bound to become an oak. He who does not have heaven in his heart now will never go to heaven. And he who has hell in his heart when he dies will go to hell. We must not think that heaven is related to a good life in somewhat the same way that a gold medal is related to study. Because a gold medal need not follow steady. It is purely extrinsic to steady. Whether heaven is related to a good and virtuous life in just exactly the same way that knowledge is related to steady. One necessarily follows the other. And hell is not related to an evil life in the same way that spanking is related to an act of disobedience. Because spanking need not follow an act of disobedience. As a matter of fact, it rarely follows of disobedience today. Uh, perhaps there are some people who are listening to me who may have to ask their grandparents what spanking is. But I will tell you what it is. Spanking is uh, a pat on the back, which develops character, provided that it is given often enough hard enough, and low enough. So hell is not related to an evil life, therefore, a spanking to an act of disobedience, but rather in the same way that corruption is related to death. One necessarily follows the other. Therefore, heaven is not just a long way off, and we are not to postpone it. It's here. That is to say, it begins here. Hence, those people who deny hell by saying, well, I believe we have hell in this life, are quite right. It starts here, but it doesn't end here. Heaven starts here. But it doesn't end here. We just get faint glimpses of it now and then. But if we postpone 
the thought of heaven until the moment we die, well, we will be very much like the Israelites during their wanderings in the desert. The poor Jews were at one time within about 11 days of the promised land. It took only three weeks for them to make the journey from Egypt to the promised land. But because of their disobediences, their failures, their backsliding, their rebellions against Moses, it took them about 40 years to get into the promised land. And that 40 years represents a pilgrimage to the life of most of us. We make progress and then we slip back. Thank heavens we have a merciful Lord who puts up with us and forgives us 70 times 7. And therefore, time is necessary in order to gain heaven. But the lapse of time itself does not bring me to heaven. What brings me to heaven is how I live, how I die. And we are not to think either that just one particular act is the sole determinant. We are determined by the habits of our life. For example, a great pianist may sit down at the piano and strike a wrong note, but you will say, oh, well, he has the habit of being a very good piano player. If I sat down to a piano to play, I might hit a right note, but you would say, he can't play. I remember once hearing a comedian sit down at a piano and talk to a famous artist, and he said to him, striking one note, if you know so much about music, tell me from what opera is that note? Well, that's the way my playing would be. I would not have the habitus. I would not have the virtue. I would not have the goodness of artistry in my soul. Now we come to what our Lord said about heaven. Always said many things about it. But there is one one moment in his life that I think is very precious. It was the night of the Last Supper. Here our blessed Lord gathered about him all of his apostles, poor, weak, frail men. He washed their feet, and uh, he was facing death, the agony in the garden, and that terrible betraying kiss of Judas and even the denial of uh, Peter himself, one would think that all of his thoughts would be on himself. Certainly when we have trials, that's what we think about. And our blessed Lord, he thought about them. He saw the sadness in their faces, and he said, not trouble. Do not be sad. I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many mansions. How did he know about? 
came from there. That was his home. He was the kind of prodigal son left the riches and happiness of the Father's house to come to this earth and to waste the substance of his life riotously on our salvation. Now, preparing to go back home, he tells them about the Father's house, and he said, I go to prepare a place for you. God never does anything for us without exceeding preparation. He made a garden for Adam. And only God knows how to make a garden beautiful. And then when the Jews came into the promised land, he prepared the land for them. He said he would give them houses full of good things, houses which they never built. He said that he would give them vineyards and oil, which they never planted. So he goes to prepare a place for us. Prepare a place. Why? Simply because Well, we actually were not made for heaven. We were made for earth. And man, by sin, spoiled the earth. And God came down from heaven in order to help us remake this earth the best we could while we are in it. But then after having redeemed us, He said that he would now give us heaven. So we got all this earth, heaven too. Oh, do not say that we work to go to heaven because we're mercenary. Man loves a woman, asks for her hand. Is it because he's mercenary? I love poetry. There's no money in it. I love tennis. I play tennis twice a week. Do I do it because it's mercenary? I do it simply because I love it. Now, something that we must remember, too, about heaven is that heaven is social. It's a fellowship. In some places, heaven is called a country to indicate its vastness. It's called a city to suggest the number of its inhabitants. It is called a kingdom to suggest order and harmony. It's called a paradise in order to tell of its delights. And it's called the Father's house to indicate its eternity and its permanence of love and peace. Now, in order to be perfectly happy after the end of the world, we will have to have our body with us because our body has done a great deal for the salvation of our soul. There we will meet in the fullness of the communion of saints, all of those who were our friends on earth, husbands who have been grieved in time of the loss of a wife, to find a wife. It's hard to lose friends after a time. Two hearts grow together, and death is not just 
separation of two hearts. It's the, it's the tearing asunder of one heart. Cicero wrote a book in his latter days entitled An Essay on Old Age. It was a poignant story of, of his heart at the loss of his daughter, Tullia. He said that after his death on his way to the Elysian fields, if he met someone who would ask him, do you want to go back to earth? He would say, no, I don't want to go back to earth because I want to go ahead and converse with Plato and Socrates. And we have many too with whom we would like to converse. I would like to see Plato, Aristotle, Moses, Thomas Aquinas, Steve on the right. I would like to see you too. I'd like to see you particularly because you have spent so much of your time listening to me. I cannot tell you what it is. I can only ask you to go back just think of some great moment in life when you really enjoyed the thrill of living. And then to go back and think of some great moment when somebody told you a truth or you made a study of a great mystery and finally understood it. And then to go to another moment of your life when you had a great ecstasy of love and you wanted it to go on and on and on. Now suppose you could take this moment of life Raise it up to a focal point where it became the Father. Take this truth. Lift it to infinity until it became the moment of the ecstasy of truth, namely the Son. And take that moment of love and eternalize it so that it became the Holy Spirit. Well, that would be some dim suggestion of what heaven is. It's perfect light. It's perfect truth. It's perfect love. I'm not afraid of, of going to hell. I'm only afraid of losing love. That's all. That's divine love. That's Christ. The reason I want to go to heaven is because I want to be with love. Oh, there will be surprises there, many of them. First of all, there will be many people there who we never expected to see there. And then there will also be a number of people absent whom we thought would be there. And finally, there will be one great surprise, the greatest of all, that you and I are there. I will see you in heaven. God love you. Hello, Radio Maria family. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen was a master communicator with an unforgettable voice and ability to communicate the message of Christianity to all peoples. He was a Catholic priest with a tremendous knowledge of Catholic theology. We've been blessed to share his recordings through the generosity of our good friends at FultonSheen.com. I would ask you to visit their website to download hundreds of MP3 talks by the great Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Please visit them at www.fultonsheen.com and there you can enjoy 
the voice of the master preacher of Christ, who touched the lives of millions worldwide with his warmth, wisdom, and humor. So please visit FultonSheen.com to start enjoying your own collection of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen recordings. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear Radio Maria audience, we have come to a close of this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living. And I would ask you to bring a friend next week and continue to pray for us and know that we will pray for you. And so until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace.